0: It is the first. Yeah. Um, as someone asked about that chanting that we did last night. It did Goa. That's the uh, Three Refuges. So, Buddha Dhammasanga, Titsarana, is the Three Refuges. And that's the uh, classic chant that is done in Theravad countries um, like when you do circumambulation. So if you go to Bodhgaya or Saranath or any of the Buddhist holy places, you'll find groups of Burmese or Thais or Sri Lankans or whoever going around (coughs) the main stupa and chanting that over and over again. So it's a very very evocative chant that is quite easy to learn. I suggest you all learn it. It's quite good. And then it can be done in this kind of mantric style over and over again, Ajahn um, who is a, uh, quite a renowned monk in, in, in Bangkok. I saw him leading a retreat in New Zealand, and he was very adamant that the uh, retreatants do the all-night sitting once a week, which is a strong tradition in the northeast of Thailand. And uh, the way he asked them to do it was to do 108 recitations of Etipi so. So if you have good vocal cords, and it's a that kind of mantric chanting. is, Tibetans do it a lot, don't they? You, know, you do a hundred thousand prostrations, and while you're doing the prostrations, you do Om Mani Padme yung, whatever the mantra. So that's been a kind of classical way of of um, many spiritual traditions of keeping the mind focused in the present moment. It takes a lot of vitality to do that. And you can be once you get into it, you can be thinking about other things too, but. It is a very obvious way to, to focus the mind, and then what's interesting going on pilgrimage is that all the people from Buddhist cultures they have a, a they have types of rituals that they can naturally participate in because they've been doing it since they were kids. So they have a they have an expressive way to be at the holy sites, and some. And most, some Westerners have those ways. They've learned them, but some don't. So you find some Westerners, they're kind of walking around more like with cameras. <laughs> I mean, everyone's got a camera or an iPhone or something like that. But they're kind of more like anthropologists. And They're kind of you can see they're they're a bit, a bit lost by it all. Not in a bad way, because it, it's you know, not in a bad way. But but when you have a when you have a tradition that you love and that you've developed and you've worked out, and then when you when you get to the holy sites all of that comes alive and bowing and offering uh, flowers to the main shrine and um, uh, doing circumambulation and chanting it so it kind of has it's a natural uh, way of expression it's very beautiful very lovely so if you plan to go on pilgrimage it's a good chance to learn it's very easy. Very easy to learn, <clears throat> and that's the you know our tradition is based on uh, this, uh, this this idea of refuge, and it's it's a kind of it's hard to in the beginning it seems so uh, abstract, at least it did for me, kind of abstract. It's like you can take refuge in in. Uh, uh, in the lawnmower, you know, I know the lawnmower. What it's going to do is plow the snow or take refuge in a person. I know I can rely on you, but this is more a bit more abstract. And so the uh, the idea of Buddha, as I often emphasize, and that you get from the Thai forest tradition, is that awake consciousness. When I'm sitting here and I'm feeling <laughs> like I want to cough, I can know that. I can also know that maybe the annoyance at that, or or, uh, not bothered. And as long as I make that awake mind my refuge, then I have a place that can understand and be free within life's vicissitudes, within life's ups and downs. If I don't have a place which is not dependent on the quality of my experiences, then where's my refuge? It's just I'm just a leaf in the wind. Sometimes it all it goes well and sometimes it doesn't. So you have worldly refuges like good financial system and good governance and those are important. And In Canada, we're really fortunate that it's probably as good as you're going to get it. But there's always a sense of uh, the unknown and how is it going to work and such like. Whereas the awake mind is not... It can because it's bigger than everything it 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 it's not it's not vulnerable think about your 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 bank uh, your bank account is vulnerable your body is vulnerable your relationships are vulnerable your car is vulnerable and you do everything you can to keep them fit but think about awareness is not vulnerable it knows vulnerability right you can feel I feel vulnerable I feel really Oh, I feel threatened and that and the awareness is, is a refuge because it can know that so that gets emphasized again and again in our tradition as as the first refuge and then the second refuge Dharma is is just a very, the very the, the reality of the way things are now I like this and, and, and Dharma is it's again it's not reality like sometimes in in uh, conventional philosophical talk, you say, well, reality is a a, a relative thing. Your reality is different than my reality. Yeah, my perceptions of you is different than your perceptions of me. But we're not talking about a kind of defined reality. We're talking more like about an existential reality. And as we're sitting here, uh, and feeling what we're feeling. We're all feeling a different experience, right? But that very feeling and how, what it's built upon and so on, that's the reality of the way things are now. It's not saying it's an absolute reality, that my, my perception is somehow more correct than yours. It's not, it's not that kind of argument. It's just that reality of the way things are is like this. And keeps keeps uh, emphasizing that. Now, when you combine those two, uh, you're awake, and then life is this way, then you begin to see what choices you're making, and what choices you can make, and what choices are skillful and unskillful, and that's the life of Sangha. You know, the life of Sangha is the life of morality, the life of, uh, of good friendships, the life of, of generosity, the life of um, um, moral responsibility, taking care of your body, taking care of your kids, taking care of your culture, that's the life of sangha, and that is um, that is a refuge, uh, if it's if it's if it's a vehicle that you use that is um, grounded in in goodness. So sangha, as a kind of representative of that principle, you could say you have the Bhikkhu Sangha or you have the arya sangha. You have different ways that the word sangha is talked about. But again, you cannot rely on me or bhikkhus or whoever because we, we drop dead and die and we do awful things like that. So the idea of refuge in Sangha is, is symbolized by a virtuous life, symbolized by a life lived uh, in, in goodness, an in aspiration to goodness. And it, it's a kind of um, definition of our social life. So the moral precepts, the development of the paramitas, um, the cultivation of compassion, the cultivation of a reflective, contemplative mind, all of those are the, the way we do Buddha-knowing Dhamma. And all of those enhance that. So, say, the principles of morality enhance the capacity to be awake. Say, if I've, in this past year, i practiced in a way where my speech hasn't been hurtful, say, to others, and has been honest and has, been, um, has integrity in it, then that practice of that speech makes it much more easy for me to be awake to the way things are. If my speech has been like if I've been you know, ripping people off, not, you know, I'm not implying that anyone's doing this, but you imagine someone who's really lived a very devious and, and uh, untruthful life, it's very hard for them to awaken to the way things are because their minds are full, filled with regret and fear and such like. So a life of, of, of um, moral impeccability enhances, uh, makes possible this, this um, practice of Buddha-knowing dhamma. If you only had Buddha-knowing dhamma and you didn't have some kind of ethical background, then it'd be very easy to say, "Well, oh, this is just the way it is Up now, I'll just, you know, I'll just kill the deer and eat it. Which is all right from some traditions, but not our tradition. It's just the way it is now. I'll just lie and get what I want. It's just the way it is now. I'll just yeah have a whiskey. It's just the way it is now. So that that kind of attitude would be meaningless, wouldn't it? It would be it would be hypocritical. Um, so so do do kind of consider what your what you trust in. and what is it what is it that gives you strength. Uh, what is it that you can really rely upon? If you rely upon something like precepts, and, and you kind of, let's like say, in a monastery, um, we have a schedule, like we do, let's say, if we do a 10 day retreat, we have a schedule, that's our responsibility. We have certain uh, duties, that's our responsibility. Um, we have the eight precepts when we live in the monastery, that's our responsibility. And that we, we give ourselves to that rather than giving ourselves to our own preferences. So if my preference is to not come to the meetings or whatever, I can watch that, because now I'm giving up to something bigger than my own you know, own needs and preferences. So this, for me, has kind of become a more and more profound theme in the beginning. Lumpa Smith talked a lot about it, but I, I must admit I didn't pick up on it, I did and I didn't, and these things become deeper factors. Now when you go to the, when you go, I hope you go, to the holy sites, um, then the whole sense of Buddha as, as a human being, too, becomes, um, for me at least, I think for all of us, becomes um, very powerful, because you go to, to Bodhgaya and you see the energy there, the vitality, and you kind of reflect, yeah, there was a human being who did this, whatever work he did, and his teaching reverberates down through the ages, 25, 59 years later, um, and we're all uh, able to participate in that because of his genius, really, his genius. So then you also get, I think, a very um, heartfelt sense of that word Buddha, a very devotional sense of that. Um, what that what that word means a, a tremendous sense of gratitude for for this to have happened, for this to be possible. And and uh, when you go like to the um, Kusinara, Kushinara, the the place of the Parinibbana, and you think, you know, parinibbana, we don't say the Buddha died. We use a different language, Parinibbana, the final nirvana where the khandas kind of fall away. And so what's that about? Said, the partner, so what you know, what is it that died, the body died, but what is it that, what do we mean by Nibbana, what do we mean about transcendence, and so there's a kind of, a very good pondering, I think, when when you get to that site, and then of course, one sees, yeah, this body's going to go, it's got a few more years left, not so much, Mm -hmm. so what is it that's born and dies, and what is it that's undying, and that kind of contemplative questioning I think becomes, for me at least, in Krishnanara, was very helpful, very profound. And then Savati, go to Savati and you you get a, I got a real strong sense of the Sangha because Savati is where we think the Buddha might have spent 25 asa. So some, some of his major teachings came from uh, Jetavana, the monastery. And then he yes, said oh, Venerable Ananda was here, Mahamoggalana and Sariputta, you know, Mah- Sariputta. You know, Sariput, all these great beings you hear about. Oh yeah, it was Sangha. One of the things I found interesting about Jetavana that it was next to the largest city in what they think largest city in India at the time, and um, I got a feeling that you know the Buddhists, the Jetavana was like in High Park, because because the the walls of, of Shalati, you could see the. The diggings where the, where the ancient walls were, and it wasn't such a far long walk from where Jetavana was, and the king's elephants did go see him. So, and I thought, yeah, you know, yeah. We although we have a kind of tradition of Ajahn Lubhaman living in the forest, forest monks, not being caught up with uh, lay life. Actually, uh, where where Jetavana was seemed to me it was really cosmopolitan, kind of in the middle of the action. It's kind of like being in Hampstead Heath in London, (laughs) or High Park in Toronto. I don't know. That's not anthropologically (laughs) anything, but that was the sort of sense of it that he was kind of in the middle of the action. You know where where the culture was and where where ideas were being. um, Philosophers were challenging each other, and rich and powerful people were coming and going. You get that. You get that sense in Thailand too, where where when the whole culture is Buddhist, you get all levels of society participating in the life of the monasteries and in the teaching. So you get farmers who are just kind of just beyond subsistence, and you get very wealthy people all coming and, and hearing the Dhamma and participating in that way. So as as we put in the newsletter, we are when you go to Thailand, you're, you're in an ocean of Buddhism. And we decided that here we're a beaver pond of Buddhism. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 kind of it's a much uh, more challenging, I think, uh, endeavor to 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 be a sincere practitioner in a culture where the signs and symbols of, of renunciation and, and enlightenment aren't so powerful. The signs of uh, consumerism are very strong in Thailand too, because it's certainly not a uh, it's a pretty full on society in many ways, but the fact that we can come together like this is, is pretty exceptional, I think, in North America. We're fortunate, so I thank you for being here and I encourage you in your practice. And so may your new year be a year of, of sustained awakening. Good help. Leave that for your reflection. Saturday, 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 Saturday.